You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonprofit Peril for uh, February 14th, 2023. I'm Morgan Neuhauser from Drake University. Here is our first story. I'm reading out of the news section, and I'm reading a story called Passing Rates Up in Iowa uh, by Tim Johnson. Iowans are taking advantage of the state's high school equivalency opportunities. High school equivalency programs are available through community colleges across the state, including Iowa Western Community College, which also offers classes in English as a second language. Individuals looking to earn their high high school equivalency diploma can often, often attend and earn their credentials at no tuition cost, although it normally costs $25 to enroll. Iowa has once again earned the top spot nationally for passing rates on the high school equivalency exam known as HISET. Over the past several years, the state has consistently been a leader on the national stage for high school equivalency passing rates success, according to past release from the Iowa Department of Education. The latest national data shows that 96.3% of Iowans pursuing a high school diploma, a high school equivalency diploma through HISET passed the exam in 2021 compared to 77% nationally. This is an increase from 95.9% reported for Iowa in 2020. Iowa also ranked first in 2021 in HISET passing rates for Spanish-speaking individuals. The press release stated, as 88.6% passing rate was identified for individuals completing the test in Spanish last year, Iowa Western offers classes year-round, according to Libby Wood, Director of Adult Basic Education. Classes are seven weeks long and are offered Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. and Monday and Wednesday from 5 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday, or Tuesday and Thursday from 5 to 8 p.m. ESL is offered Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to noon and Monday, Wednesday from 5 to 8 p.m. or Tuesday, Thursday from 5 to 8 p.m. The the HISET is actually a group of five tests covering the required subjects, language arts, reading, language arts, reading, language arts, writing, math, science, and social studies, Woods said in an email. Last year, 213 students took at least one of the five final exams. About 85 finished About eighty-five finished passing the exams last year and graduated from the program, she said. Graduates receive a high school equivalency diploma from the state of Iowa and can participate in Iowa Western's spring commencement ceremony with its other students. As Iowa Western, 16 to 24 year olds make up 42% of the the ABE students, 25 to 44 year olds compromise 45% of the students, and those 45 and older make up 13%. Iowa's continued achievements on the HISET exam is is a proud is a proud moment for adult education and literacy and high school equivalency diploma programs across the state, said Amy Jaski. 
Community Colleges Bureau Chief at the Iowa Department of Education. Through the department's partnership with Iowa, 15 community colleges, these programs are assisting individuals who want to pursue education and training, develop new skills, and discover career pathways. The HISET exam, which was developed by the more, by the nonprofit education educational testing service, measures the knowledge and proficiency equivalents of to those of an Iowa high school graduate. It has served as a state-approved test in Iowa since 2014. Currently, 29 states and four U.S. territories use HISET as a high school equivalency testing option. The exam is offered online and in paper testing versions. Out of 1,500 Iowas, Iowans who completed who completed the ex- the exam last year, 1,448 passed with their high school equivalency to pro- diploma. High school equivalency diploma programs can be the start to new opportunities for an individual, says Mike Williams, Department of Education Adult Education and Literacy Consultant. It can potentially lead to other college courses and credentials, new connections, and expanding job prospects. Passing the HISET exam is one possible path for Iowans to earn a high school equivalency diploma. Iowa law allows state providers to offer alternative pathways for students to demonstrate competency that would lead to the issuance of a high school equivalency diploma by the Iowa Department of Education. In addition to passing the state-approved exam, providers may offer high school equivalency diplomas based on the attainment of high school credit, post-secondary degree, or foreign post-secondary degree. The next article is Proposed Plan Would Reduce Emissions by Brittany J. Miller. Iowa DNR revisions would affect Mid-Americans County Council Bluffs plans. I propose Iowa Department of Natural Resources revision would require Mid-American Energy to improve equipment at select coal-fired power plants by the end of this year which would reduce about 9,700 tons of sulfur dioxide emissions per year and help pre- pre- prevent haze in, in natural areas. Haze is when air pollutants observe or scatter sunlight and obstruct visibility. Air pollutions can come from sources like power plants using fossil fuels, car exhaust, and wildfires. In the Midwest, haze is primarily made from particles of sulfate, nitrate, organic carbon, soot, and materials from the earth crust. The Federal Regulation Haze Rules was announced in 1999 under the Clean Air Act to eliminate human-made visibly made visibly impairments in 156 national parks and wilderness areas by 2064. States are required to submit 10-year programs, 10-year plans for restoring natural visibility conditions along with progress reports every five years. Iowa doesn't contain any areas that are protected under this rule, nor is it within 186 miles of any such areas. However, based on data modeling, emissions from the state could comprise between 3% and 4% of human-made haze plaguing unprotected areas in Michigan, Minnesota, and Missouri. That's why the Iowa DNRs... They're doing... 
This proposed revisions to the state's region haze plan. Now it's now in its second 10-year period spanning 2019 through 28, targets Truman American Coal Fire Power Plant. Louisa Generating Station in Muscantin and the Walter Scott Jr. Energy Center in Council Bluffs. The revision dictates more control of sulfur di- dioxide emissions by improving dry scrubber technology at the coal-fired power plant. Dry scrubbers are systems that can remove dangerous gases from emissions since they already exist at the plants. A dry scrubbers were deemed the most cost-effective option installing, totaling a combined $2.3 million in annual operating costs in 2019, dollars in both plants. The addition of a new system that would reduce SO2 and nitrate emissions were deemed too costly, surpassing $83 million and $56 million respectively, and therefore unreasonable at the time. The improvements are estimated to reduce about 3,900 tons of SO2 emissions each year from the Louise, Louisa Generating Station, which emitted 4,892 tons in 2022. About 5,800 tons per year will be reduced from a unit of the Walter Scott Jr. Energy Center, which admitted 7,236 tons in 2021. Mid-American fully support the Iowa DNR's revision, said company spokesperson Geoff uh, Greenwood in an email. One of the Mid-American's core principles is environmental respect, and we're fully committed to operating our facilities in a manner that meets or exceeds all regulatory requirements, he said. At this stage, we don't intend to file former comments regarding the draft documents, but we continue to be engaged with the DNR and other stakeholders in the process. Thus, Far analysis has shown that no other sources in Iowa contribute to the majority of the sulfate and nitrate impacts in the 156 protected areas. The Iowa DNI's proposed draft of its regional Hayes plan operated, opened for public comments Monday and will close on March 16th. Uh, next article is Canines Demonstrate Doug Drug Detection uh, by David Golbitz. Um, Chicago's Police Academy also touches on suspect apprehension. Uh, There's a nice little picture of a dog jumping out of a car. And it says, Council Bluffs Police Service Dog, or Canine, Arias chomps down on the illegal drugs he found during a demonstration of his olfactory prowess at, at the Citizens Police Academy session on Thursday, February 9th, 2023. While Council Bluffs Police Department officers, Alex... Clement, Ken McCurr, and Colby McCord comp- comprised the human component of the department's canine unit. It was the canine companion who stole the show during the unit's presentation at last week's Citizens Police Academy session. Police service do- dogs, Aries and Hoosier, put their considerable talents on display after the humans explained the canine unit's role as part of the larger police department. Working with his partner, McClure, PS, PSD, Aries eagerly demonstrated his drug detection skills. He searched the conference room, sniffing along the walls and doors, a podium wherever McClure would direct him. 
you'll be able to see the alert that we talked about, which is essentially there's a change in behavior, Clement explained. Before the demonstration began, he may become completely nasal, start excessively sniffing, he'll probably square his body out towards the source of the odor, and then he'll go into go into indication which can either be a sit, standing there, or lay down. Most likely with this dog, it will be a set. As the demonstration began, Aries knew there will be something hidden somewhere in the room, and he was going to follow his snout until he found it, which he did. After about a minute, about a minute of, of olfactory detective work, Aries sat down, head up, fixated on a cabinet tucked away in the corner of the room. McClure opened one of the drawers and pulled out a used road flare that has been coated in the scent of an Ill- illicit narcotic, which Aries could wait to start going up, which Aries couldn't wait to start dying up. PSDs or canines are literally trained to stick their noses into other people's business. It's their job, and while the dogs might not exactly take pride in the work, the handlers certainly do. The dogs are basically a part of our family, Clement said at the canine demonstration last year in Grand Park. We are just around each other 24-7, just like it would be with your pet at home. We are just that close with them. And then the fact that we're training them to help serve other people, to save other people's lives, uh, is what makes them so valuable to us. Dogs are trained for police service. Dogs can cost Dogs that are trained for police service can cost tens of thousands of dollars, and except for recent retiree Rudy's replacement, all the city canines have been purchased from international vendors and transported to the United States. Clement Stock Hoosier hails hails from Hungary, and Aries was born in Poland. Training usually begins when the dogs are a year and a half to two years old. Council Bluffs canines are trained to sniff out narcotics and evidence and track support and track suspects, which they love to do, McClure said. That's their paycheck. McClure said they love to catch bad guys. To demonstrate catching a bad guy, McClure donned a puppy padded bite suit with, while Clement received his partner Hoosier. Clement shouted multiple warnings and recurred telling him to surrender. When McCurd continued being uncooperative, Clement sent Hoosier to locate and subdue the suspect. Hoosier raced up to McCurd and barked, continually signaling that he had found someone, while keeping the suspect rooted in place. Clement told Hoosier to stand down while he began frisking the suspect. McCurd, defiant, shoved Clement away from him, which triggered Hoosier to go after him. With no prompting from Clement, Hoosier leapt towards the McCord and locked his jaw around the bite, his bite suit encased arm. The dogs are trained to bite and hold a suspect, and while an arm or leg is preferable, the dogs can be trained to go after a specific body part. Later, McCord pretended to run away from Clement. Hoosier, again, with no verbal command from Clement, went after him after holding McCord's arms and his voice in his vice-like jaws. The state of Iowa doesn't have a certification process for police service dogs or any guidelines for training. So the CBPD K-9 unit uses the Nebraska certification standard. The unit also trains once a week with counterparts from other jurisdictions, including Pottawa. 
Potawatin County, Omaha, Douglas County, Sarpy County, Bellevue, uh, Papillion, and La Vista. We bring a lot of people, McClure said. It takes a lot of people to train dogs. When we have a training day, basically one dog goes at a time, but you need an agitator. You need people helping to hide narcotics. You need people for safety. We don't have a facility, so we go to all these weird places, so you have to keep people from coming in and out of your training areas so somebody doesn't get bitten. McCord was the only member of the canine unit whose partner didn't participate in the Citizens Police Academy. McCord's former partner, Rudy, retired earlier this year due to health health issues caused by his fall from a three-story rooftop in 2021. Rudy survived but suffered a broken femur and tibia. After surgery and rehab, he returned to duty but arthritis in his leg and hip cut his career short. McCord took ownership of Rudy, who is now training to adjust from a life of service to one of leisure. McCord recently picked up his new partner, whose name was to be determined at the time of the last week's CPA class from a vendor in Florida. It it will take a few weeks for McCord and his new partner to train together and bond, and they'll they'll be put out on patrol together, enjoying being out of service, being of service to the fellow officers and the community. Uh, the next article is Blind Iowans Where the Loose Service Because We Have How uh sorry. The next article is Blind Iowans Worry the Loose Services. Speakers Weary of How Proposed Realignment of Government Impacts Them by Aaron Murphy. Des Moines, blind Iowans poured into a legislative hearing Monday to express strong disagreement with an element of Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal to realign state government that would enable her to appoint the director of the state agency that provides services for the blind. Currently, a three-member commission of National appointees in the Iowa Department of the Blind elects offices, including the agency director, under Reynolds, sweeping Proposal to realign state government, the director also would be appointed by the governor and subject to confirmation by the Iowa Senate. Blind Iowans, including the state agency's current director, said that the proposal opens the door to an appointee who may not be blind and thus not have direct experience with what it's like to live blind. I cannot say that it, this is good for blind Iowans. I know I'm not surprised to, I'm not supposed to say that, Emily Wharton, who has been director of the Iowa Department of the Blind since 2016 and was born legally blind, told state lawmakers during a legislative hearing. Other state agency directors who have testified to lawmakers on the Reynolds state government realignment bill have had have all praised the proposal. The state estimates there are roughly 54,000 Iowans who have experienced vision loss. The Iowa Department for the Blind helps educate a trade and empower blind Iowans to develop their independence and job skills. Eight blind Iowans testified during Monday's hearing, while many others listened. Some of those who spoke praised the services the Iowa that Iowa provides to blind residents, especially compared with other states. They said they worry those state-run programs could become less valuable if the agency is directed by someone without the proper expertise. I've heard our government say many times that Iowans know what's best for Iowans. I would think that would go for blind Iowans, too, said Mike Jones, a blind man from Des Moines. Blind Iowans know what's best for blind Iowans. Becky Young, president of the Des Moines chapter of the National Federation of the Blind, said that 
She has been impressed by how Iowan, Iowa State Services help blind residents and that she worries what the program could look like in the future under Reynolds' proposed proposal. These students are prepared. They are confident blind people, said Young, who is born blind. It won't be a good thing without blind people running the department. Blind people who know about blindness, not some ophthalmologist who is more concerned about the sighted than they are the blind. And an official from the governor's office who attended the hearing said that the proposal to make the department had a national appointment matches with the philosophical approach to Reynolds' broader state government reorganization, which is that agency heads within the executive branch should be accountable to the government, to the governor. At some point, we have to start paying attention to the people who are impacted by these legislative decisions, said Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines, and one of the lawmakers on the panel that is considering this legislation. But... Bolton noted that meeting itself noted that the meeting itself provided an example of why the involvement of expertise is important. Even though the proposal includes moving the Iowa School for the Deaf and Council Bluffs from under the State Board of Regents to the State Education Department, no American Sign Language signer was there for the hearing, and lawmakers and staff had a difficult time communicating with the blind Iowans who wished to speak. The people are telling us, without exception, this is a bad idea. People who have experiences and knowledge, Walton said. Lawmakers said that they will continue uh, their work on the governor's proposal, Senate Study Bill 1123, which is nearly 1,600 pages long and lays out the reorganization and streamlining of the state government. Uh, Face of the day. Raising support for people facing cardiac treatment is a deeply personal cause for Laura Gumpini, supply chain manager at Methodist uh, Jenny Edmondson Hospital and Methodist Women's Hospital. Reorganizing that heart that heart disease runs in her recognizing that heart disease runs in her family she states no matter where anyone is treated many people need assistance to get through the difficult time Gananpini has worked in the Methodist health system for 15 years when she is not at work you can find her riding her motorcycle cooking entertaining and spending time with friends or spending time with her cat Grayson in 2020 Ganapini attended Dance to the Beat for the first time. She has decided to purchase a table and invite some of her friends to join her. They all had a fabulous time, and she will be bringing another table this year. Uh, these programs are vital to our patients, she said. All Janine Edmonton Hospital employees should be proud to work for an organization that is so valued in the community. This year's Dance to the Beat is being held on Friday, February 17th from 7 to 11 p.m. To purchase your $30 Dance to the Beat ticket or to learn more, contact the Methodist Janie Edmondson Hospital Foundation at jehfoundation.org or by calling 712-396-6040. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Non Non Peril for for February fourteenth, twenty twenty three, on Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Services for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Morgan Newhouser from Drake University. 
Iris Volunteer, love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. We are going to read the obituaries next. Um, Patricia May Whithower. Patricia May Whithower, Patty, age 93, passed away Saturday, February 11, 2023, at North Crest Living Center in Council Bluffs. Patty was born January 21st, 1930, on her grandparents' farm in Bartlett, Iowa, and was raised there, graduating from Glenwood High in 1948. On June 5th, 1948, Patty married Don Woodhower, and they, fra- they farmed most of their married life, raising two sons, Edward and Timothy. Patty was active in her church and also loved to garden cooking, crafts, and sewing, often making her own clothes. She and Don loved to travel on their motorcycle, riding snowmobiles and square dancing. Patty lost her loving husband, uh, Don, on February 25th, 2010. Son Edward Don at the age of 50 in 2000, and his, and his wife Sharon, parents Raymond and June Langs, grandparents George and George and Maud Johnson, sister Don of Darland. After losing Don, Patty worked outside the home and continued her her love for the Lord. Patty is survived by son Tim and his wife Marla, grandsons Adam Woodhower and wife Megan, and their children Rhea, Dally, Ophelia, and Green, and Genevieve, Aaron Woodhower and wife Brandy, and their children Bella, Corbin, and Vanessa. Visitations Friday, uh, five thirty. Uh, visitations will take place on Friday at 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. at Color O'Neill Meyer Wood, Wooding Funeral Home. Funeral services Saturday, 11 a.m. at the Living Hope Community Church, 15101 Hope Lane. Lunch in will, uh, a luncheon will follow immediately. Interment following the luncheon at Ridgewood Cemetery. George Peter Cohen. George Peter Cohen, age 92, passed away February 8th, 2023. He was born on March 11th, 1930, to Bentley, in Bentley, Iowa, to, to Wilhelm and Mildred Tim Koenig. He proudly served in the U.S. Navy. George worked at Central Supply and Rubber Company and for the U.S. Postal Services. He was a loving father and grandfather and will be greatly missed. George is survived by his children, Deborah, Michael, Vicky, George, and James, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, family, and friends. Per his request, cremation with no service. All right, the sports section. And the first article we will be reading is Super Bowl Had Feel Good Vibes for All by Rob Maddy. Glendale, Arizona, the Super Bowl had something for everyone. Long before Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs lifted the Vince Lombardi Trophy, the biggest winner of this NFL season, walked onto the field. DeMar Hamlin came out to a rousing o- ovation during a pregame ceremony honoring the man and women, the men and women who saved his life. Hamlin's third appearance of the week was the best feel-good moment on a day filled with many inspirational themes. Mahomes and Janelle Hurts put on a historic show in the first Super Bowl featuring two black starting quarterbacks. Hurts was spectacular, but Mahomes played through an ankle injury and rallied the Chiefs from a 10-point deficit for 38-35 
to 35 comeback win over the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday, on Sunday night. It was yet another lesson on dealing with adversity and rising to the occasion playing out before hundreds of millions of viewers on the sport's biggest stage. I appreciate because of the failures, Mahomes said, about winning a second championship in four years. I mean, the failure of losing a Super Bowl and losing the AFC Championship game gives you a greater appreciation to be standing here as a champion. Brotherhood was on display in the first Super Bowl matchup involving two brothers playing on different teams. Chief All-Pro tight end Travis Kelsey caught a touchdown pass to help his team topple All-Pro center Jason Kelsey and the Eagles. Mama Kelsey was everywhere throughout the week and sat between NFL Commissioner Roger Goodall and Hamlin in a suit. There's nothing I can say to him other than I love him and he played a hell of a year and a hell of a season, Travis Kelsey said. To see my family... Be in, to be in all its glory and get all its flowers, my mom be the center of attention on the jumbotron before the game on the biggest stage and being able to get closer with my brother throughout the season and to meet him at the mountaintop. It's the best feeling in the world. I don't know how many more I got left, but I'll cherish this one forever. Don Kelsey was the most popular mother in Arizona until Rihanna showed up for a scintillating halftime show the superstar singer kicked off and finished their suburb superb performance soaring high above the slippery field surface on a platform that was suspended in the air and she and she did it while pregnant rihanna's representative confirmed afterwards that she's pregnant with her second child so iconic for rihanna to let an american football game happen at her pregnancy reveal slash concert a fan wrote on twitter even the commercials had a warm fuzzy vibe advertisers used familiar celebrity faces light humor and plenty of cute dogs in ads that cost as much as seven million dollars uh for 30 seconds about the only negative on super bowl sunday was a controversial penalty on the final drive of the game that left reviewers feeling angry that officiating Officiating again impacted a playoff game. A defense-holding call on Eagles cornerback James Bradbury allowed Kansas City to keep the ball, run down the clock, and Harrison Bucker kick, kicked the goal, uh, kicked the go-ahead 27-yard field goal with eight seconds left. But Bradbury quickly squashed the outrage, saying he had the rece- he held the receiver. It was a holding. I tugged his jersey. I was hoping. They would let it slide, Bradbury said. On a day filled with unifying events, Bradbury's acknowledgement was a prime example of losing with dignity. Uh, the next article is Saints and uh, Saints and Titans teams qualify for state. Uh, there's a picture uh, and it's of a girls bowling team. There's about seven of them and uh, four adults. And they're holding two posters. One says Bowling State Qualifier 2023. And then the Saints with their coaches proudly hold their state qualifying banner. Uh, this article is by Austin. Austin. For the first time in school history, the St. Albert Saints bowling team was qualified for a trip to the state tournament. The defending state champion, Lewis Central, also purchased their tickets in Class 2A as they finished as a runner-up behind Lamar's. In addition, Elsie and St. Albert also had three individuals qualify for the state tournament. For the Saints, they won their first ever district championship to officially lock up a sport, a spot at state next week in Waterloo after posting a team score of 
2,609, just shy of 600 pins, better than the second place Tri-Center Trojans. After building, after building for this moment over the past few years, as some of the girls were freshmen, the team and coaches were more than jubilant to say their work paid off. It's so awesome for the girls and to St. Albert, and to the St. Albert family, Saints coach Justin Peckney said, it's amazing the hard work these girls have done is now paying off, and I'm very impressed with how they handled themselves today and now looking and now looking really forward to them hopefully making a big statement at stake. We planned all season for this moment. This is what we were working for, St. Coaches Mike Klesman said. To see it finally happening is an incredible moment, and we couldn't be more excited. As great as qualifying feels, the Saints have a new ultimate goal. We've made it this far, so why not us, Klesman said. We'll be one of eight there, so we got a chance. You just never know. Pressure is a funny thing in sports, and if these girls get some confidence and got and get and got hot, you never know what can come of it. In addition to the Saints heading to state as a team, three bowlers placed within the top four, thus calling for the individual tournament. Among those three was freshman Bailey Seacrest, who was crowned the individual district champion with a score of 573. Especially with it being my freshman year, I know this is something you don't see a lot around the state. Going in as a team, uh, Seacrest said, going in as a team who almost feels like a dream. Being able to go to state with all these girls is really exciting. We finally put ourselves on the map and we're looking to do more. With Seacrest, Georgia Bowen finished second. Uh, with a score of 528, and Lexi Narmi with third overall with 517 to qualify individually for state. Notably, Tri-Center placed second as a team in the Thunderbolt with a team score of 2,040. Becca there posted the best score for the Trojans with a 458, which was good for eighth overall among the individuals. The top four individuals in Class 1A qualify for state. The class in class two A, Lewis Central will make their way back to state for the second year in a row as they finished as as they finished as the district runner up with a team score of two hundred two thousand seven hundred and twenty five in Lamars. Lamars was the district champion with a score of three thousand and two hundred and three. In addition to the team's qualification, the Titans also had three individuals qualify for state. Senior Alicia Olden was the individual district champion with a three-game score of 6.96. Joining her in the Waterloo will be freshman Kate Reed, who finished fifth overall with a 577, and junior Faith Renshaw, who placed sixth overall in Monday's tournament with a 576. It always feels really good when you are on a trip to state, Paul Renshaw said. Everything just clicked today. Our spare shooting was above normal, and the girls just battled. Fifteen bigger games sounds like a lot, but they do go by quickly, and all the girls battled through all fifteen games. Renshaw went on to talk about the Titans' three individual qualifiers. Alicia just shot lights out all day long, Renshaw said. She shot just shy of 700, which would beat a lot of the men in adult leagues on most nights. Faith and Kate battled down to the 10th frame of game number three. Kate was a bit, was able to squeeze by, by squeeze by Faith by a pin, and it was just a long wait to make sure all the scores were correct. But when we heard 560 with the A spot, we knew that we had three girls going to state. The top eight individuals bowlers in class 2A and 3A qualify for state. 
Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln were unavailable to reporters uh, before the story's publication. Check back soon for further details as a result of Monday Girls District Bowling and State Qualification Meet. The state bowling tournament will take place in Waterloo starting on Monday through Wednesday. The individual tournaments take place at Maple Lanes Bowling Center and team tournaments take place at the Cadillac XBC. See below for further state tournament details. Um, Monday, February 20th is Class 1A team, Class 3A individual. Tuesday, February 21st is Class 2A team, Class 1A individual. Wednesday, February 22nd is Class 3A team and Class 2A individual. Okay, the next article we will read is NFL takes no breaks as Chief Super Bowl Revelry waits by Dave Skirta. The Kansas City Chiefs awoke Monday still reveling in their glow of their second Super Bowl title in four years span. While the Philadelphia Eagles were left to lamate how close they came to winning another Lombardi trophy of their own. The rest of the league, well, they've been looking forward. They've been looking towards the future for a while now. The day after the Super Bowl, Represents the day of the off season, though that's a bit of a misnomer. Nobody around the NFL takes any time off. There are some hard business decisions to be made with current players, uh, scouting that needs to be wrapped up, and a game plan to formulate before the league holds its annual draft at the end of April. The draft cons- coincidentally will be here in Kansas, will be in Kansas City this year. Here's a look at what comes next, how the confetti has settled on state, now that the confetti has settled on State Farm Stadium. Franchise situation. The first big deal of the off-season calendar is February 21st, when teams can designate franchise uh, or transition players. It's technically given to one unrestricted free agent and guarantees another year under contract at a fixed, at a fixed contract. The Chiefs did this last did that last season with left tackle Orlando Brown Jr. when the two sides couldn't agree on a long-term deal, and it's possible Brown gets tagged a second time. Other players that could get the tag include Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson and Commanders def- defensive lineman and, and Commander defense lineman and Darren Payne. The deadline for clubs to designate players is March 7th. Time to study. The week-long NFL scouting com- combined begins February 28th at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis, where NFL teams will have a chance to test dozens of prospects in a single setting. Otherwise, scouts will fan out across the country beginning March 7th, when individual colleges hold their pro days. And clubs can begin to host up to 30 draft eligible players for visits. The Bears have the first pick, though happy with quarterback Justin Fields, it's possible they take they trade it they trade it to a team looking for one of the top QBs available. Those begin with Alabama Bryce Young, Ohio State CJ Stroud, and Will Levis of Kentucky. Other p- potential number one picks are George, Georgia defensive tackle Jalen Carter and Alabama pe- pass rusher Will Anderson Jr. There is a uh, free agent fencing. There is a three-day window beginning March 13th in which clubs can contact and begin negotiation with free agents. Negotiating with free agents and qualifying offers for restricted 
free agents are due on March 15th. The south of the day, all clubs must be under the salary cap with the new league year, and signing off players officially begins at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Jackson would be the most conf- coveted player available if he's not franchised, though that is unlikely. Ravens linebacker Rockin Smith, Eagles defensive tackle Jarvin Hargraves, and Bengals safety Jesse Bates III are among the top free agents on defense, while Giants running back Saquon Barkley could be in line for a massive deal. Pick me. The next big party after the Super Bowl is the NFL Draft, taking place from April 27th to 29th at Union Station in Kansas City. It's the first time the city will host the selection bonanza, and given the hometown Chiefs will still be celebrating a Lombardi trophy, you can be sure that the party downtown will last throughout the weekend. The next article is swimming. Lewis Central, with three finalists out of 11, qualifies at state champions. The Lewis Central Titans swim team competed in the IHSAA State Swimming Championship this weekend at the University of Iowa. LC qualified to swim in five of the 11 events in the prelims on Friday, during which they achieved their seasonal best times in all five of these events. The Titans qualified in just three of those five events at Saturday Saturday finals, but again improved on their career's best times in all three of those events. In the in the meet final Saturday, Elsie scored in the top 16 in all three events with best times again. Scoring team points for the Titans were senior Patrick Chase in the 100-yard butterfly, finishing 11th place with a career best time of 51.98. Seconds. Elsie's 200 freestyle relay team of R- Riley McMurphy, Jimmy Coach, and Gavin Rothmeyer and Chase finished 16th with a time of 1 minute and 30, 30.46 seconds. The 400 freestyle relay team of Aaron Matiki, Coach, Rothmeyer, and Chase finished 16th with a time of 3 minutes and 20 seconds. Abraham Lincoln's Wayne Summers qualified for the IHS. Uh, yes, this is, uh, now we're on to boys wrestling. Summer qualifies for state tournament. Abraham Lincoln Wayne Summers qualified for the IHSAA state tournament in Des Moines this week. Summers finished third at 285 pounds with a pin. The daily non-parallel didn't include Summers in its coverage Sunday and regrets the omission. Next article is about Major League Baseball, and it says, Key Dates, Mark Your Calendar for the Upcoming Season, by Jay Cohn. So many returnees for baseball this summer. Some happy, some not so much. Here are some dates to remember for the coming season. Thursday, March 30th, Chicago White Sox at Houston Astros. Jose Jose Altavo and the Astros get another opportunity to celebrate the franchise second World Series championship when they host Tim Anderson and the White Sox on opening day. Houston beat Philadelphia in six games to take home the league title last year. It's also a reunion for first baseman Jose Abreu, uh, who signed a three-year contract with the Astros in November after spending the past nine seasons with the White Sox. The, uh, Tuesday, April 18th, Los Angeles Angels at New York Yankees. On the 100th anniversary of the opening of original Yankee Stadium, marked by a Babe Ruth home run, 
So hey, on Tani, and the Los Angeles Angels opened a three-year game set at the New York Yankee at the New Yankee Stadium. Despite another stellar season by Otani, the Angels went 73 out of 89 73-89 last year in the franchise seventh consecutive losing season. Friday, April 28th, uh, Atlanta Braves and New York Mets. The longtime rivals play for the first time since their NFL East race last year. After Atlanta rallied for the division title and New York was eliminated in the first round of the playoffs, Mets owners Steve Cohen went on an epic spending spree that included the additions of pitcher Justin Verlander and Cody Senga. Atlanta lost all-star shortstop, shortstop Dansby Swanson in free agency, but it's acquired catcher Sean Murphy in the team trade in December. Monday, May 1st, Philadelphia Phillies at Los Angeles Dodgers. Trey Turner and Philadelphia visit Freddie Freeman in Los Angeles for a matchup of, of NL contenders. Turner's played for the Dodgers last year, battling .298 with 21 homers and a career-high 100 RBIs. The All-Star shortstop then signed a $300 million 11-year contract with the Phillies in December. Philadelphia will begin the season without Bryce Harper after the slugger had right off with surgery in November, but he is expected to return to the lineup by the All-Star break. Friday, June 16th, New York Yankees at Boston Red Sox. Aaron Judge and the Yankees meet their first, make their first 2023 trip to Fenway Park for the opener of a weekend series against Rafael Dan- Denvers and the Red Sox. New York went 13 through 6 against Boston last year, outscoring the Red Sox 109 to 76. But the rivals played 13 times this season because of baseball's new balance schedule. New York added Carlos Rodon to its rotation in December, while Boston signed Japanese outfielder Masate Yoshandi during a relatively quiet winter. Saturday, June 24th, Chicago Cubs at St. Louis Cardinals. Baseball returns to London Stadium with Ian Happ and the Cubs take on take on Wilson Contreras and the Cardinals. The NF, the NL Central. The National League Central rivals were supposed to play in London in 2020, but the games were canceled because of the coronavirus pandemic. Contreras signed an $87.5 million five-year contract with St. Louis in December, joining one of Chicago's biggest rivals after spending the first seven seasons with the Cubs. The Cardinals' first game of the season at Wrigley Field is May 8th. Tuesday, July 11th, All-Star Game at Seattle. The All-Star Game heads to the Emerald City for the first time since 2001 and third time overall. The last time Seattle hosted the Midsummer Classic, Carl Ripken Jr. homered to lead the American League to a 4-1 victory over Barry Bonds in the National League. Mariner star Julio Rodriguez was the runner-up to, to Juan Soto in last year's home run derby and the dynamite and the dynamic outfielder will have plenty of support if he decides to try the event again this year at T-Mobile Park. Monday, August 28th, Texas Rangers and New York Mets. Ace right-hander Jacob DeGroom returns to New York after signing a $185 million five-year contract with Texas over the winter. Uh, the 34-year-old DeGroom spent his first nine seasons with the Mets winning two uh, Cy Young Awards while becoming one of the majors' most dominant pitchers, but he was hampered by injuries this past two years. With the addition of DeGroom and Naval and Nathan Avadi, 
Texas is looking to challenge Houston for the all for the American League West title. Uh, Wednesday, September 6th, Minnesota Twins at Cleveland Guardians. The Twins and Guardians meet for their last time in the regular season in the afternoon finale of a three-game series. Minnesota is looking to return to the playoffs after an offseason highlighted by a $200 million six-year deal with Carlos Carrera. Cleveland won the American League Central last year for the first time since 2018, finishing 14 games ahead of the third-place Twins. The Guardians added some power to their lineup when they signed first baseman Josh Bell to a two-year contract. Wednesday, September 13th, San Diego Padres at Los Angeles Dodgers. Many Machado and Dan Diego conclude their season series against Mookie Betts and Los Angeles with the finale of a three-game set. The Dodgers won the National League West title in 2022 for the ninth time in 10 years, but they were eliminated by the second-place Padres in their NFL Division Series, San Diego made one of the most surprising moves of the offseason, signing shortstop Alexander Bogaitz to a $280 million 11-year contract. Los Angeles was pretty quiet over the winter, but it still is one of the major's deepest rosters. Ta- uh, Sunday, October 1st, Tampa Bay uh, Tampa Bay Rays at Toronto Blue Jays. Tampa Bay finishes the regular season with a three-game set at Toronto in an American League East mashup. The Rays made their playoffs in 2022 for the fourth straight year, but they were swept by Cleveland in the wild card round. A healthy season for the infielder one. Wander Franco could provide a big boost for Tampa Bay. Toronto also makes the playoffs this year, uh, and it could be even better this season after signing Chris Bassett in free agency and acquiring Slugger, Dalton, Bashar in a trade with Arizona. And now we're in the lifestyle section for our last article, and it's titled, Earnest or Playful, That Valentine's Card Has a History, Catherine Roth. New York. It was Valentine's Day 1917 in the Minnesota farming village of Lewiston, and Fred Roth, a fourth grader, seems to have come up with just a way to express his love for his sweetheart. Lewis writes, he gave her a card. The folding pop of Valentine's Day card on stock so heavy it remains in good con- in good shape a hundred and six years later reads, Forget me not, I ask of thee, reserve one spot in your heart for me. And so she did. Years later they married and Louise displayed the cherished card tucked into the fretwork of a bedroom dresser. For decades to come, she pointed it out to her daughter and later to her granddaughter, me, and it reigned near her bedside until her death at 91, a token of lasting love. Although the message was in English, the card is printed with the words Germany, and it's seemingly imported as many, as were many cards of that era. Small companies in the U.S. also were part of a flourishing commercial card business. Hallmark, which began offering Valentine's Day cards in 1913, estimates that to date 145 million Valentine's Day cards are exchanged annually, not including the kids' Valentine's popular for classrooms exchanges. Family-related customs and rituals have been celebrated in mid-February uh, February since pagan times, says Amelia Gavant, curator of folk art and curatorial chair in, uh, for collections at the American Folk Art Museum in New York City. Tokens of affection varied. In the 1600s, the practice was to give pairs of gloves in mid-February, she says. Uh, By the 18th century, we start to see uh, something that really begins to resemble modern Valentine's cards. Uh, She says, in the 19th century, this this evolved further 
to the point where popular ladies' magazines like Harper's Weekly uh, published instructions for readers on how to craft them. There has long been both earnest, heartfelt valentines like Grandpa Fred's and ones in more teasing, playful vein. The museum collection includes a number of lovingly crafted tokens of affection from various periods. You see the heart motif quite a lot. Chivalt said, although not specifically linked to Valentine's Day, an exhibit at the museum opening March 17th. Material witness, folk and self-taught artists at work, features two examples of fracture, exuberantly decorated watercolors made by German immigrants in Pennsylvania. One is called Inverted Heart, and other depicts a labyrinth. They're, they were really dazzling objects, including motifs of flowers or hearts. The playfulness and cleverness of these objects is one of the most interesting aspects they have in common, Javald said. In the mid-19th century, some people shared vinegar valentines, a sort of anti-valentine that featured playful, insulting verses, not unlike a modern-day roast. Sometimes cards involved writing a, in a circle of upside down like a puzzle. Some had a decorative folder border or a verse on the folds, cutwork resembling lace or watercolor decorations or pierced hearts, lovers and flowers, lovers knots, and labyrinths were also common elements. They remind me of games like plucking the petals of a flower, saying, no, she loves me not. She loves me, Kavan said. The boom in commercial Valentine's Day cards in the mid-1800s was a reflection of changing courtship patterns, says Elizabeth White Nelson, Associated Professor of History in the University of, of Nevada, Las Vegas. The idea of com- companion marriage and love became a part of the, the calculus of marriage and Valentine's Day cards became a part of courtship, she says. These days, these cards can continue to evolve. Over the last few years, trends have been less about romantic love but more about letting someone know they matter, said Jen, Wa- Jen Walker, a vice president of Trends and Creative Studios at Hallmark Cards. These are the more inclusive visuals and a larger representative of relationships love, chosen family, friendship, parents, and children, self-care, she says. A bit of mystery surrounds my grandma Louise's precious valentine. It would have been out of character for Fred to buy a commercial card as opposed to, say, presenting her with a bouquet of pussy white willows that he picked. That period would have been the beginning of an organized practice of exchanging valentines in school, says Nelson. In some classrooms, everyone was required, or at least encouraged, to give a valentine. The giving and receiving of Valentine's was always partly about performing love for an audience, says Nelson. And once the Valentine's Day card got saved, it would have become a, t- a talisman of that love is supposed to be. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 14th, 2023. The Nonpareil can be heard every weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Morgan Newhauser from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.
Are you among the millions of Americans living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain, but no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required, and you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.